There may not be a more satisfying phrase in the English language than the phrase, I told you so. Anybody with me? Right? Like, like there's some other good ones that are up there, but when you get to say, I told you so, or if you're married, when you get to think, I told you so, <laughs> right? Because you don't always need to say it, I told you so. It's really satisfying. It's this moment when you set out to prove or you waited patiently to show or you just kind of got your moment and you showed this other person this couldn't be done or this had to be done or this is the only way to do it, whatever it was, that moment that comes either when you got to think or you got to see or you got to feel that I told you so, it's a good moment, right? Like you can be honest, I know we're in church and we're supposed to you know, really only be kind and true. And, but there's something nice about the I told you so moment. Some of you are married today because your parents told you you shouldn't marry that person and you've been married for a long time. And every time you celebrate an anniversary in your head, you kind of think, I, I told you so. Some of you are only married because someone said you shouldn't be married and you keep saying, I told you so. Don't elbow your spouse right now awkward right like some of you some of you at work have only climbed the how high you've climbed because someone told you you would never amount to anything and now you can say i told you so some of you who are who you are because someone told you you couldn't be and you can now say i told you so some of you have lost friends because someone else told you once that well they told you so whatever it is you know that feeling right you've had that moment that that that, that final culmination of, of a long wait, of, a, of, a, of an epic trial of a moment when the I told you so finally comes to fruition. My dad and I have this long-running joke, and, and there's going to be this moment when either I have the final grand I told you so, or we never speak to each other again. You see, my dad is kind of this really depressing morose fellow who says that when we get to heaven we won't recognize each other and I ask him why he wants to be in heaven without me and he says you should know and I then say well but if what is heaven without mom you know and like what is heaven without your your parents you know and, and we go through this battle all the time and I remind him that I'm the one with a degree in bible and theology and I know all of these things and I've read all the books and I know everything and and I say, Dad, we're going to know each other when we get in heaven. We go through this argument time and time again, and my dad will always say, listen, when we get to heaven, if you can find me, you can say, I told you so. And he said, but if I win, we'll never know. And it's this thing because my dad, right, he's my dad. He's always been right. Every time we argue, everything he tells me, he's always right. But if we get to heaven and I'm right, and we'll recognize each other, I totally am. And when I'm right, and we recognize each other, it is going to be the biggest, if y'all are there when it happens, like, you'll know it happens, because it's going to be the biggest, grandest, I told you so, that you've ever seen, right? <laughs> like, it's going to come this moment, because there's this satisfaction to be able to prove, right? Whether someone said it can be done, or it can't be done. See, because now I've lost y'all, because y'all are thinking, like, Man, dad really thinks we're not going to know each other in heaven? Man, that guy's sad. I know, okay? He's wrong. Don't worry about it, right? I'm sure of it, right? But for some of you, like, you know that feeling. 
And for others of you, you live your life that way because it's the only thing you know. Like some of you know that there are critics who've said you can't do what you've set out to do. But then there's others of you who've never tried because the critics or the people in your life said you can't do what it is that you wanted to do. And so here you sit, 25, 40, 60, and you never got to accomplish what you hoped to because somebody told you it couldn't be done. And now they sit back and say, I told you so. Whitney and I have this running joke because I am eternally optimistic. I think that there could be lightning in the striking in front of the van on the way to the pool. And I'm like, by the time we get there, the sun's going to be out and it's going to be fine. And when he's like, we should turn around, it's not going to be good. And I'm like, nah, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And I say, you're just such a pessimist. And Whitney always says, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. And I say, that's what every pessimist says, is that they're not a pessimist, they're a realist. But I'm just always the one who believes the best in every situation, who sees the hope in everyone. And Whitney's the one who honestly is, is a realist, there's some pessimism in there too, but she's a realist because she understands the reality of situations and doesn't always see the hope. And there's some good to that because she's not always the one who gets her hopes dashed all of the time because after my hopes get built up and then the situation doesn't work out, I'm the one who's devastated and she's the one who goes, oh, I told you so. But there's something that happens, right? Because the optimist believes that there is more, believes that it could be better, believes that there is something. But I firmly believe that, and hear me out here, I don't want you to, I don't want you to miss this point, that if you're a follower of Jesus, when it comes to how you view people, you have to be an optimist. This doesn't mean that like, when it comes to the weather or your view on the stock market or government, you have to be an optimist. But when it comes to how you view people, you have to be optimistic. Because Jesus modeled for us time and time again that no one was too far. And this is where the I told you so comes into the gospel. Because time and time again, someone would say, that's not happening. But then someone in the gospels would prove it wrong and basically pull a first century, I told you so. So this is what happens. The one we're going to look at today is, is one of the, the famous fishing stories that, that Jesus happens because Jesus follows around. Jesus is followed around by a bunch of fishermen in Luke chapter 5. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 5, that's where we're going to be today. Luke records uh, one of the histories of Jesus' life. We call it one of the Gospels. And there in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is starting to draw a pretty big crowd. And what happens is as he's drawing a pretty big crowd, he's having this struggle because as the crowd grows bigger, they're pressing in on him, right? You've seen, you've seen the old footage of the Beatles. Maybe some of you were still uh, you were alive when the Beatles were around. You know, like, uh, we're not going to talk about that. But, you know, like the, you've seen the, the people pressing in on the Beatles and it got so crowded and it got so full and they couldn't do anything. And, and so, you know, sorry, was that an old joke? Was that insensitive? I'm sorry. You know, so you've seen the, the celebrities getting mobbed and, and people getting rushed, and, and this is happening to Jesus. The crowd is growing and growing and growing, and so Jesus is getting so rushed by this crowd that he doesn't know what to do. So in Luke chapter 5, it says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. 
Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. Now, this is an important thing to understand because there's a couple of things that happen here. The first is that Jesus isn't getting in the boat to get away from the people because he's tired of them. He's getting in the boat to get away from the people because there has to come a point when the people are so pressed in on him that he can't teach them anymore. Right? This isn't as if Jesus is an introvert going, I need space. This is Jesus saying, I want to teach you. I feel the need that you guys have to hear what I have to say. But you guys getting closer is making it harder on the people in the back to hear. And because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he doesn't get into the boat by accident. And I want to try this, but like everywhere I can think of to try this is so polluted by outside noise it wouldn't work. But in the first century, life was different. And he, Jesus, as fully God, would know that the lake would act as a natural amphitheater. So if they rowed the boat out far enough, Jesus could use the water and the space there to act as a sort of echo and sound projection system. So they would row the boat out just far enough that if he spoke loud enough and projected his voice enough, the water would help project his voice so that the people, the, the, the pressing throng of people, could hear what he had to say. And so when they get in the boat originally, it's not because Jesus is like, no pictures, no pictures. They get in the boat originally because Jesus has a passion for all of the people who are pressing in on him. And he understands, because he created the universe, he understands that for them to hear him, he has to do something. And so he makes a, makes a step and makes a way for the people who are there to hear him. And I think this is an important thing for us to understand. This isn't something where Jesus says, eh, there's too many people here. We can't reach all these people today. Send some of them home. Because you'll hear people talk about, well, you talk about reaching the 50,000. There's too many people in the 50,000. We can't reach that many. But Jesus regularly reached out to large crowds. He regularly had large crowds around him that he would try to reach out to. And he did whatever it took to make sure that the large crowds could hear the gospel. And so this large crowd comes and he teaches them, right? And Luke doesn't tell us exactly what he teaches them. Um, I, I would argue that it's probably some version of the Sermon on the Mount. We've heard it several times. You, if you see it written out several times, that's not the point of what Luke's trying to tell in this story, though, because Luke's telling a different story. Because then what happens, it happens in verse 4, is Jesus takes a different step, right? It says, when he had finished speaking... He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. So what happens here is Simon, the fisherman, was done for the day, right? Jesus had made his way to the beach and, to the, cr and the crowd had followed him and the, the fishermen were just there. They were washing their nets because they'd already gotten out of the boat and they were done for the day and they were getting ready because the fishermen in the lake of Gennesaret in the Middle East at that time, they're fishing at night because you can imagine how hot it is in the middle of the day in the Middle East, right? And you, if you're a fisherman at all, you know the rules. This is one of the reasons I'm not a fisherman. If you want to catch the fish, you've got to get up early in the morning. And you've got to get up early in the morning and you've got to go out when it's cool and when the fish are biting. And so the, the professional fishermen would fish overnight 
And so when Simon, who we later know as Peter, when Simon Peter is cleaning his nets, he's cleaning his nets and admitting defeat for the day and admitting like, hey, we didn't catch anything for the night. And so then when Jesus comes to him and asks him to put him out in the boat, Simon says, sure, I didn't catch anything. I got nothing to sell today. Why not? And then when he puts him out in the boat, here's Simon and Jesus out in the boat, and Simon hears Jesus teaching, and, and he hears what's going on, and, and then Jesus says, hey, put your net back down. And, and Simon's like, dude, I'm a pro. You have no business having this discussion with me. Right? Because at this point, it's getting into the mid-afternoon. You know how hot it starts to get at 10.30, 11 o'clock. It's starting to get hot. The, sun, the sun's beating down. He's like, the fish aren't biting. He's like, they weren't biting in the middle of the night. They're sure not going to be biting right now. But there's something that tells Simon Peter, I should go ahead and do this. And I don't know, it's one of two things. If it was me, it would be because I think I'm the expert in this field. And Simon Peter at this point doesn't yet know everything about Jesus, right? He hasn't actually started following Jesus. This is one of the first times that he meets Jesus. And so it's not as if he understands that this is God, the miracle worker who can do all of these things. He's still trying to figure Jesus out. And so I partly, part of me wonders if he puts his nets down just to pull him back up in a minute and say, see, dude, I told you, you, you can't fish in the middle of the day. I told you. But then the other part of me wonders if Simon hasn't seen the, the large crowds, if Simon hasn't seen that there's something different about this guy if he hasn't seen, like, hey, there's something going on here. Maybe we should try it. Because to be honest, he's an expert. He would know. But he doesn't. He does it even though logic would tell him differently even though all of the science says the worst time of day to be fishing is in the middle of the afternoon. Even though all of his years of experience say that's not the time to catch fish. Even though every sign points to you're not going to catch a single thing, Simon Peter goes through the motions and puts the net in the water because Jesus tells him to put the net in the water. And this is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is that no person is too far gone. Jesus can save them. No person is too far gone. Friends, this room in both services is full of people who one person or another would have said was too far gone at one point or another, who some people might say is still too far gone. But the power of the gospel is that logic might say and that conventional wisdom might say this person is too far gone, but Jesus never says that. And so he's telling Simon Peter, he's saying, hey, put your net in the water. And Simon Peter's saying, listen, I'm telling you it doesn't make sense, but I'll do it anyway. I'm telling you this, this is not the right logic, but I'll try it just because you say. It won't work, but I'll try it. One of, my, one of my current heroes, kind of, they phase in and out, is a guy named Derwin Gray. And Derwin Gray is the pastor of a large church in Charlotte. And uh, one of the reasons he's my favorite pastors right now is because he's a former NFL player. 
And uh, he wasn't a Christian. He actually played football for the, uh, BYU, which is a Mormon school, and he wasn't a Mormon either. He just was kind of a guy who went there and played football. And, um, but he thought he had it all figured out because he was like a good enough guy. And you know, you become a good enough guy by using your standard of measure by how good you are by the, a person who's worse than you, right? Like, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. <clears throat> and so Derwin thought that he was good enough because he wasn't as bad as his uncles and brothers who had, who had gone to jail. And so he was the first gray to get a college, gra- college diploma. He was the first gray to not be in jail by the age of 22. So he thought he was doing pretty well. And he got drafted by the Indianapolis Colts. And he was there as an Indianapolis Colt. And it was at his first training camp that he met a guy that they call in the Colts locker room, a linebacker by the name of Steve that they called the Naked Preacher. And every day after practice, the Naked Preacher would wrap a towel around his waist and he'd walk through the, through the locker room with his with his Bible, and he'd say, do you know Jesus? And it wasn't like a yelling, it wasn't a screaming, it was just a conversation, and he'd have it with everybody because he knew, Steve the linebacker knew how important Jesus was, and he didn't want to let it by. And so one day he stopped by Derwin's locker, and he said, Derwin, do you know Jesus? And Derwin started in on how good a person he was, and They started talking, and eventually, over the course of a few years, Derwin's heart was broken, and he became a Christian, and eventually became a pastor, and he shares this story all the time about how football had been his God his whole life, and how there were people who knew the stories about the things that Derwin Gray had done, and they would tell you that he worshipped football, and he worshipped the things he had, and the money he made, and the celebrity that he had so much that he was too far gone for the gospel. But Steve, the naked preacher, didn't believe it. And he shared the gospel with him there in the Colts locker room. And he didn't stop the first day. Because Derwin wasn't too far gone for Jesus. And now there are thousands of people who today are hearing Derwin preach at Transformation Church in Charlotte because of Steve in Indianapolis. Because the beauty of the gospel is that no one is too far gone. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to teach Simon Peter in one of their very first interactions. Is that logic be defied. Common sense means nothing when it comes to the gospel. And he says, put your net in the water. And Peter puts his net in the water and he says, and when they had done this, They enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so full that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and sang, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were also John, the sons of John, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought the, their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Because it didn't matter what the logic said. It didn't matter what the experts said. It didn't matter what common sense said. What mattered was that Jesus said, put your net in the water. And they had a catch bigger than they'd ever had. A catch so big that two boats couldn't handle it. 
catch so big that it defied any of the things that they had ever seen or known. A catch bigger than anything they could come up with. Because the gospel isn't about what we can do. The gospel is about what Jesus can do. And so why is it that as a church of 150 people, we don't talk about reaching 10, we don't talk about reaching 50, we talk about reaching 50,000? Because it's not about what we can do, it's about what Jesus can do. There's a verse in the book of John when, when Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Do you catch that? Jesus said that we can do greater things than what he did while he was on earth through the power of the gospel. And it's not as if we are Jesus. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit who he sent to us after he left earth. It's because of Jesus, it's because of the Holy Spirit that our fishing story isn't, well, I just cast my net out one day and I only caught one fish. It's because of Jesus that our stories are, logic be defied, this person came to know Jesus because of who Jesus is. You see, because there's this person who works with you who is an ardent atheist who you're pretty sure knows more about the Bible than you do because they've read a couple books and, and they always spout about all the bad things that it says and you know when you're sure. And so you've never bothered to talk to them about it because you don't think you could handle it. But my question is, is how many times have you prayed, God, send the Holy Spirit to me today so that through the Holy Spirit we can do more work and talk to him? Not that we're going to argue with him, not that we're going to convert him today, but just so that we can talk to him and share with him, just so that we can build a relationship with him. Because you have a relative who you know everyone else says is too far gone. Well, when was the last time that somebody just reached out to him and told him that they loved him? Because there are people in your life who other people who logic and, and, and experts and others will say is, are too far gone. But Jesus is pulling at your heart today and saying, that's the person you need to be casting your net towards right now. And it's not something that you can accomplish by yourself. Because Jesus words that, that verse very carefully. He doesn't say you can accomplish this by yourself. You can accomplish this because you are superhuman. He says you can accomplish this because when I go to the Father, we will send the helper. We will send the Spirit. Because no one is too far gone. Ken and Floyd, Ken and Floyd Smith believed that no one was too far gone. 
And I wish I was as brave as Ken and Floyd Smith are. Because Ken and Floyd Smith started writing letters to Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. And she was a friend of theirs, and they weren't sure how to start the conversation. But they just wanted to let her know that they loved her. And they wanted to let her know that Jesus did too. But Dr. Butterfield wasn't just any normal person. Dr. Butterfield described herself as a leftist, lesbian, anti-God, atheist professor. But Ken and Floyd Smith were friends. And they'd known her for a long time. And they couldn't bear the thought to know that their friend Rosario was not saved that the gospel had yet to overtake Rosario's life. And so they just started a simple letter writing. And they wrote her a few letters and had a couple conversations. And at age 40, Dr. Butterfield started a transformation where she went from a well-known, published, publicized, doctoral professor who was everything that most people would think God is not, who the kind of person that most people in every room that looks like this one today would write off and say, those are the people who are too far gone. She slunk out of bed one morning and slunk into the back of a church and said, I knew everyone there would know exactly who I was and would just run at the sight of me, but when no one did, I knew something must be different. And it was that morning, she said, One ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. My conversion was a train wreck. I didn't want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. And she said, I drank tentatively at first, then passionately, passionately, the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife, she's now married to a pastor. And many call me mother. I have not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life. And she said, though my former life lurked in the edges of my heart, shiny and still like a knife, she said, Jesus. The kind of person that most experts, that most critics, that most people would say, too far gone is the very person that Ken and Floyd Smith said, we can't let her go. We can't let her go. The power of the gospel is one that says it doesn't make sense, but Jesus won't let her go either. And so today, I want you to be reminded of that truth. Be reminded that there was a time when you too were thought of to be too far gone. 
when what you had done, when what you had given up, when what you had been through, other people would have thought was too much. Maybe right now in your life, people think it's too much. And the people who call themselves church people and the, and the religious people would think this isn't how we're supposed to act. But Jesus sees it differently. Because his concern is whether or not you're coming to him. Because you see, communion, communion is all about us saying, I was too far gone. And it's only because of me. It's only because of you, Lord, that now I'm not. It's only because you've saved me, God, that I'm here. Only because of your son's 